Hey everyone, what's up and welcome to Front Run, where we predict the future of money and technology. Thank you to all of the new listeners, subscribers, and followers. Tremendous growth over the past two weeks. Pleasantly surprised and what a great way to kick off 2023. If this is your first time with us, we're all here to Front Run, what we believe is the next generation of wealth creation, decentralized finance, and cryptocurrency. I'm your host, John Cook. It's the second week of January 2023, and we are covering three topics today that we originally published this past Saturday as part of our top three. And the topics for today's focus are MakerDAO becomes a landlord, optimism's token valuation, I think it's overvalued, and the death of GMI, it didn't make it. There's very long analysis on these three topics available at frontruncrypto.com. I'm going to post it in the show notes. I think everybody should take a moment to read it because it has a lot of the details, the nuance. But with that said, before we dive in, I want to call out, uh, I was pleasantly surprised this past week. I saw on the Ethereum subreddit, uh, one of our one of our articles trending on the first page. I was like, whoa. And I thought it was going to be a hot take or um, we write plenty of hot takes related to what tokens we think are going to pop, what tokens we think are going to go to zero. And it was neither. It was actually uh, the article on how to create a multi-sig wallet with Genosis Safe. I was like, wow, maybe people do care about um, sovereignty and taking custody of your assets. So very cool. If you are one of those individuals who are perhaps storing the majority of your assets on a centralized exchange, I encourage you to take time now in 2023 to start the process of taking custody of your crypto. This doesn't mean you need to move your entire net worth onto a multi-sig wallet or Trezor hardware wallet now, but set it up. Set it up. Go buy a hardware wallet or set up a multi-sig wallet on Arbitrum and uh, experiment. Deposit some ETH into it, set up two or three signatures, and see what happens. The more comfortable you get, maybe transfer an NFT to it, right? The more you experiment, the more comfortable you get, and the more you'll realize how the underlying technology works. Also, we all, we published an analysis this past week on Lido, the LDO token. Uh, I have a very strong opinion with respect to LDO. I think it's an overvalued, centralized, pre-mined pre-sold, worthless utility governance token that is no way, uh, that is, there's no way it is worth $1 billion. It got, it actually caught quite a bit of, um, I guess, popularity on Twitter. Lots of responses, lots of good feedback. Most people agree. Some don't. If you want to read the analysis of why I think the LDO token is overvalued, I'm going to put that in the show notes as well. Take some time to read through it and understand the pros and cons. Before you enter an, into any LDO position, because it is up, um, it is up, I think, 100% over the past week. There's no way, there's no way that's organic market demand, given that the LDO token is controlled in such a way where 95% of the tokens fully diluted market cap is controlled by 100 people. Uh, there's notes on that in the analysis, but please, please, please proceed with caution, especially if you're going to go long in LDO. So with that said, let's dive into our three topics. We'll start with MakerDAO's foray uh, into commercial real estate. And I'm going to, for those watching on YouTube, I'm actually going to walk through the analysis live. So if you're if you're following along uh, on podcasts, when a chart comes up, I'll describe it. Okay. So the the catalyst for selecting MakerDAO as the topic of exploration is there's been the reemergence of real world assets within the Ethereum uh, crypto ecosystem. Real world assets are using on-chain loans to fund off-chain investments. That That is like the TLDR of it. Uh, there's I wrote a much longer analysis on the types of on-chain collateral risk associated with real-world assets. Um, the, the cautionary note is that there really isn't anything on-chain with the real-world asset. So if you lock a million dollars into a smart contract 
and then the one million dollars of maybe Dai or USDC is converted to USD, and then that USD is used to acquire commercial real estate in the middle of America. And then that commercial real estate is tokenized by, I don't know, an NFT called commercial real estate NFT, right? If the borrower defaults on that note, there are no on-chain automated smart contract mechanisms to facilitate the repayment of the loan because the loan's collateral is not on-chain, right? So even though there are on-chain NFTs that are tokenized to represent real-world assets, please be aware that the asset is not in the metaverse. It's in the real world. So if a default were to occur, there are no on-chain automatic repercussions like there are within Ave, where if you uh if your health check or health factor drops below one Ave will automatically liquidate your deposited collateral to pay off the loan that doesn't happen um, with on-chain loans used to fund off-chain investments like real world assets so when we think about like real world assets, we don't necessarily mean commercial real estate. Like real world assets could mean uh, risk free assets like U.S. Treasury bonds. Recall that uh, MakerDAO deployed half a billion dollars to buy short term notes. Right. Off chain investments could also be loans to facilitate accounts receivable loans. So an accounts receivable loan is I need cash to uh, acquire inventory. And I need the inventory now, but I won't get the cash for six months. You can go to a lender, finance an accounts receivable loan, get the cash up front, and then the amount that you've borrowed is collateralized by the actual goods that um, you're purchasing to be sold. You could also fund off-chain investments like commercial real estate projects that we've already talked about. Uh, recall MakerDAO's doing this with Tesla, um, Wawa, Service King, O'Reilly Auto Parts, right? Or you can even invest in unsecured debt to finance smartphone purchases for cons- uh, consumers in third world countries. This is actually really popular uh, with, I'm loading it up on the screen now, Goldfinch did this. It's an unsecured loan. It's an unsecured on-chain loan where the borrower is PayJoy. PayJoy is a lending platform in Mexico. PayJoy uses the uh, the borrowed on-chain USDC to finance mobile phone purchases uh, for individuals in Mexico. And then the individuals uh, repay the loan like over time, similar to what happens in America, actually. But this is uh, uncollateralized in that if the individual defaults on the loan, like the there's no recourse with respect to, um, with respect to repossessing the smartphone. Does it happen? You just take the L, right? So my I, like this isn't necessarily new. This actually came out in like 2021. So why is this why is this like trending on Twitter again? My theory is that uh, in part it's by RWA.xyz. Everybody should check it out. RWA.xyz is called realworldassets.xyz. It's a very interesting, brand new platform that quantifies private credit protocols, investment, individual loans, real estate loans, stablecoin loans, security loans, essentially any type of on-chain loan used to fund off-chain investments across the criteria I've just described. So because that became trending again... um, I think that's why we see RWA back in the news. So I went to the website and I saw across their platform um, a real estate section which had a headline that said uh, Block Tower Credit and MakerDAO are funding a $220 million loan of real-world assets through Centrifuge. 
I was like, what's going on here? Because remember, uh, MakerDAO did this maybe last year with Tesla and um, O'Reilly Auto Parts. But I was like, are they dipping their toes in this again? How much exposure does MakerDAO have to uh, real-world assets? And like, how, what is the structure of the partnership with Block Tower and Centrifuge? And here's what I found out. Okay. Uh, MakerDAO is a lender of $150 million. Block Tower is a lender of $70 million. Uh, if you look through like the MakerDAO governance proposals, the gist of it is that every, uh, every MakerDAO, there's four MakerDAO vaults of DAI across four different funding types. And Block Tower has to provide collateral in addition to DAI. But MakerDAO is senior to the note compared to BlockTower, which means if a default were to occur, uh, MakerDAO is first in line. But BlockTower is also the asset manager and loan originator, loan originator for prospective ba- borrowers. So BlockTower, uh, ba- basically what happens is MakerDAO creates a DAI vault of in the aggregate $150 million, uh, Block Tower provides $70 million for a total of $220 million. Block Tower uh, partners with downstream prospective borrowers to originate the loan, qualify the borrower, facilitate the loan repayments, right? And Block Tower becomes the asset manager of the aggregate $220 million that are in part funded by MakerDAO. Now, Centrifuge comes into play and that's it's the DeFi protocol that facilitates the on-chain tokenization of the real-world asset. So if you imagine that uh, that $220 million is going, is going off of the blockchain, right? And it's going to some off-chain asset to fund commercial real estate investments. That commercial real estate is collateralized uh, the loan is collateralized in the real world, but borrowers, in this case, it's the Maker DAO Foundation, will own NFTs that represent ownership in the off-chain asset, and the off-chain asset will have the associated risk and yield accruing to the NFT, and by proxy the nft's owner i actually wrote a rather long analysis on this it's fairly manual in that there isn't really an automated mechanism the borrower is actually manually remitting payments to a block tower who is manually remitting payments back to the lending pool via centrifuge um and essentially block block tower provides as we called out, 30% junior capital in every vault from its LPs and also acts as the loan originator for the prospective block tower borrowers, facilitating the qualified, uh, the, the credit evaluation. And the gist of it is that uh, the aggregate loan amounts going to be distributed amongst four different categories. Category number one is whole loans and receivables, right? These are the accounts receivable purchases we were talking about earlier. Number two is senior secured asset-backed facilities. These are loans backed by some asset. It doesn't necessarily need to be a physical asset in the real world. It could be a security like a like commercial paper, right? Structured credit products, investment-grade asset-backed securities, structured credit products. I think this means uncollateralized loans. Proceed with caution. Structured credit products, investment-backed, investment-grade assets-backed security. It's another $70 million, so it's a different tranche, right? What I want to point out is that this is the departure from how Maker, from how Maker normally mints die, right? It's traditionally over-collateralized by ETH, right? But what we've seen over the past year is through platforms like Goldfinch and... Who's another really... Pl- uh, who, which one just defaulted on the Alameda loan? Um, Goldfinch is one example... Let me see if I can pull this up. Maple Finance is another uh, uncollateralized lending platform. These are actually the two largest uncollateralized lending platforms on Ethereum right now per w, for, per RWA.xyz. And like their thesis is that over-collateralization is bad because 
over collateralization represents an inefficient use of capital, which is really a fancy way of saying that all of your money is locked up and only a, a, only a subset of it at most 80% is used to facilitate yield invest you use to facilitate investments that generate yield. I think that's like a complete misdirection and an incredibly bad idea and so far real world assets um and so far uncollateralized assets on the blockchain have completely failed. I mean, you can look at GPL and uh, uh Maple Token year over year, they're down like 99%, right? And those are the two largest uncollateralized lending platforms in Ethereum. If we, even if we put that to the side, I was a bit suspicious. And I'm full disclosure, I'm not a member of Maker's like finance committee, and uh, nor am I part of the committee that defines how like the DAI asset soft pegs to the US dollar. But what I do know is that Maker has over $6 billion in total value locked, and it's the largest collateralized debt protocol on Ethereum by far, right? And what I've come to conclude is that uh, there is a risk with a maker and real-world assets in the possibility that a default may persist due to bad off-chain investments made by distant loan originators to borrowers acquiring assets maker has no insight or specialization into into assessing right so it, what that means is maker deploys 150 million dollars they give it to um, a fund manager in this case the fund manager's block tower block tower takes the 150 million dollars combines it with their 70 million dollars and then facilitates the underwriting credit approval validation of the potential borrowers, and then those borrowers take the collateral provided by Maker and then use it to go do stuff like uh, invest in commercial real estate, finance uh, commercial paper loans, finance accounts receivable loans, and it goes on. Maker doesn't have like any specialization in in any of these aspects that I've just described, right? The Maker the Maker Dow Foundation is not an expert of finance professionals with decades of experience in underwriting commercial real estate, right? And if this goes sideways, Maker could absorb the bad debt via its buffer. And we can see, I, I pulled up, I'm pulling up a tweet right now from Maker. I quote, the surplus buffer is set at 250 million die, and then the burn was stopped. Additionally, there are new Maker proposals that aim to eliminate the maker burn and use excess die from the system surplus for other activities that could potent positively impact maker. So this is saying that if if an investment on maker goes sideways, there's a buffer of 250 million die that can be used to like uh backstop uh default. But what happens if there's not enough die? What happens if the if the debt that is now impaired via bad investment decisions uh, is greater than Maker's buffer. Then Maker would have to mint new MKR tokens and sell them on the open market. More MKR tokens in circulation would decrease, would, would essentially cause downward pressure on the existing spot price of Maker and be a net detraction to all of Maker's uh, token holders, right? I think this sounds pretty risky for 1% yield, 2% yield. And when I was looking through uh, the MakerDAO governance proposals, I wasn't alone. So, for example, here, quote, quoting some members of the MakerDAO, have we learned nothing from FTX? Why are we risking Maker solvency on these B-grade centralized opaque assets when we can just put in treasuries and earn solid yields on the massive free capital we've accumulated. Another quote. And just to be clear, Block Tower seems like a great organization. My issue is that the DAO simply doesn't have the expertise to analyze the assets underlying these types of deals. So what does the voting committee of MakerDAO do, given this feedback? Well, they pass it, of course. And why do they pass it? Because Maker's ownership 
the ownership of the MKR token is skewed such that a few individuals control an outsized supply, either by direct uh, token ownership or delegation. And this is not like a hot take. This is the actual data. You can see on the uh, on the graph I have up, the snapshot vote for uh, the real world asset investment via block tower passed 75% yes, 15% no. 10% abstain. Why did it pass? Because the largest 10 maker voters in this proposal accounted for 74% of the aggregate voting power, right? Isn't that crazy? The largest the largest debt protocol on Ethereum is controlled by 10 people. I think I might publish an article separately about that. I mean, big, big questions with respect to centralization risk vectors. But even if we put that to the side, we can agree, we acknowledge a truth in that Maker has over $6 billion of assets under management. And when we look at uh, the Maker Burn page, which outlines um, what percentage of the assets governed by MakerDAO are real world, are real world versus on-chain Ethereum, USDC, so on and so forth. Uh, I've pulled up the collateralization chart, and we can see that about nine hundred, eight hundred fifty million of the six point five billion is uh, what Maker considers a real world asset, which could be uh, commercial paper, U.S. Treasury bonds, actual commercial real estate, accounts receivable loans, so on and so forth. And what I find like super questionable, if anybody is listening, I'm happy to hear the counterpoints is Maker saying the collateralization ratio for the real world assets is eight is 133%. That means Maker has $1.33 of assets collateralized for every dollar of debt that has been issued, right? Maker loans out a dollar, they receive $1.33 in uh, collateral. And again, I'm not I I'm not sure like I I I agree with that sentiment because collateral is off-chain investments that don't exist in the metaverse. They exist in the physical world. So even if you have a O'Reilly Auto Parts, uh like if we, we'll we'll run through an example. One of Maker's previous loans was a $15 million loan to uh, fund the build-out of an O'Reilly Auto Part and a Tesla automotive repair facility. Okay, $15 million. So Maker gives Maker deploys $15 million via DAI to uh, a trust that manages the $14 million that is ultimately deployed to Tesla and O'Reilly Auto Parts. So in that scenario, the $14 million is collateralized at a ratio of 100% because it could be 150% if we assume the value of the end product, the O'Reilly Auto Parts and the Tesla facility is greater than the, the debt amount provided by Maker. But it's not on chain. It's all like the, the Tesla automotive repair shop is in the real world. So even if it is collateralized, if that if that build out were to go sideways, Tesla goes bankrupt, something bad happens, there's a red herring. How is Maker what is the recourse that Maker has to claw back the fourteen million dollars of collateralized debt from Tesla? I, I don't think they really have any. That's why I don't really buy the 133% collateralization. Ratio, it might be true in like the in like the legal sense, but it's not true in like the blockchain sense, right? But when we break down the eight hundred fifty million dollars, this is what got me really curious: is I I wanted to understand what percentage of the eight hundred fifty million dollars uh, is actual real property versus government bonds and commercial paper. Commercial paper is unsecured debt, by the way. So I actually look through the uh, die vault pools. Their prefix RWA007, RWA009, RWA001, RWA002, so on and so forth, to try to figure out, okay, of this $850 million deployed, how much actually goes to uh, real-world assets? And what we found is that uh, $500 million was used to purchase government bonds. So these are risk-free assets. Uh, 
you can you can do this. You can go to Fidelity and like buy a government bond right now. You can also go to the uh, U.S. Treasury website. RDBA 009 was a hundred million dollar loan to Huntington Valley Beach. This RWA009 was used to uh, fund real-world investments. We'll cover that separately. RWA001 is the $14 million loan uh, that was used to fund purchase agreements for the O'Reilly Auto Parts, the Teslas that we talked about in the past. And then RWA002 is a uh, hard money loan for real estate investors who are like doing flips. So you can see that if you add up 009 plus 001 plus 002, you have about $125 million of real world assets. Uh, You have $125 million of debt that di- that maker has issued that has actually been allocated to physical property in the real world. There's the Dune Analytics report that that goes through this in greater detail, but I, I just think it's hilarious that makers' collateralized debt pools are being used to finance commercial real estate deals for Raleigh Auto Parts. I mean, like, w- what are we doing here, right? It, it doesn't even it's it this isn't like true to the ethos of of maker which we can get to but it, it gets better because the hundred million dollar loan uh that was rwa009 to huntington valley bank that's a tradfi bank in philadelphia okay and i read the terms of agreement and it includes an initial debt ceiling of a hundred million dollars that's what's actually uh that's the the debt that uh that is the amount of debt huntington valley bank has to pay back as of today. But they have a target goal of borrowing $1 billion in the next 12 months to facilitate commercial loans, construction financing, and loans guaranteed by property plant equipment. And I posted in the uh, in the analysis uh, the MakerDAO term agreement, MIP6 Huntington Valley Bank loan, syndication onboarding with MakerDAO, and I'll read, I'll read a part of it. HVB loans originated by HVB commercial lending have a fixed and floating rate, uh, and it can be used to amortize commercial mortgage loans on stabilized commercial real estate investments or construction financing secured by uh, commercial real estate investments called construction loans. This leads me to like really the 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 point in this entire analysis. So why does this matter? Why does it matter that an online asset manager with $7 billion of assets under management, this case is Maker, is allocating $850 million to real-world assets, of which $125 million are secured by real property? It's, it's a small fraction. $850 real-world assets, that's about, um, that's about 10%, 11% of the $7 billion. And then like one twenty five million, that's what two percent. My my animosity against this is MakerDAO is not an asset management firm. MakerDAO is not BlackRock. MakerDAO is not the Vanguard Group. It's not Fidelity Investments, nor is it uh, any other asset management firm that exists to maximize shareholder value by efficiently deploying capital that yields the highest return on assets. That's not why MakerDAO was created. Maker was created to address the public's growing frustration and distress of dysfunctional financial systems makers core product die it's a stable coin pegged to the u.s dollar the die stable coin is engineered to minimize price volatility it's pegged to a dollar for a reason right and therefore like my conclusion is that the die the value of makers die is its stability and these aren't just hot takes that i'm like um I'm saying, like, I read the maker. I read Maker's white paper. This is what Maker's saying, right? The uh, the growing distrust and frustration of dysfunctional financial systems. That's uh, that's in the Maker white paper here in MCD. We trust. Go to that section. It literally says. Uh, Blockchain technology provides an unprecedented opportunity to ease the public's growing frustration and distrust of decentralized financial systems. Maker is doing exactly what they said, what they set out to not do, right? Underwriting traditional finance loans to commercial institutions collateralized by real property is the antithesis of price volatility minimization. It violates Maker's promise to solve dysfunctional financial systems 
And it actually enables the same bad practices that caused the last financial crisis. Most importantly, it puts the entire crypto ecosystem at risk by exposing centralization and option opaque investment risk to Ethereum's largest stablecoins. Like real real estate is not risk-free. Like public e-REITs were down like 30% year over year. Even if you look at the private REITs of which I'm invested in, those took it on the chin between like negative 5% and negative 15%, right? Real estate is not risk-free and makers should take heed to this warning. If $7 billion of assets under management with a $250 million buffer, that's not sufficient. Should widespread contagion circuit the 2008 real estate crisis reemerge in the next years? Maker's position is DeFi stablecoin. I am 100% convinced. Uh, will be. It will be jeopardized, and that would be, that would be chaos for the broader crypto ecosystem and not just Ethereum. Next, we're going to cover uh, Optimism's token valuation and upcoming investor unlocks. I've been super critical on uh, the uh, just general state of like tokenomics, token valuations, layer two valuations, uh, governance token valuations, utility token valuations. Like, I, I just think so many crypto tokens are overvalued relative to the underlying economic benefit. Uh, which is the protocol revenue that accrues to the DAO and or its token holders, that I just don't think the majority of these crypto tokens are worth $4 billion, $3 billion, $2 billion, $10 billion in their market cap, right? So I want to get that out of the way now. And when I and just state that when I'm discussing like tokenomics, unlock schedules, crypto valuations, my criticism is with the value of the token and it is not a criticism of the technology nor its ability to potentially impact the broader crypto ecosystem a lot of tokens in the crypto space are just overvalued and i think op is one of them so but but op the technology op the technology optimism is super interesting Optimism is a layer two uh, ethereum protocol and it's designed with the modular framework that enables developers to engineer a flexible roll-up architecture across its consensus execution and settlement layers. In the show notes, I included a link to a, a tweet thread that outlines a very exceptional a summary of Optimism's value proposition, but the gist of it is that Optimism is modular such that engineers can pick and pull different components from different from different um, modules within the L2. I mean, it, it's so impressive. Like, if you just think about the execution layer, the consensus layer, the settlement layer that permeates across L2, with, like, Optimism's modularity, you can replace fault proofs with the ZK proof, right? It's super cool. It's a little like theoretical abstract and that like there hasn't been an application for it. But I like to like draw a parody to just thinking about the optimism like layer two as a chain through which you can be modular and how engineers design and architect uh, the consensus layer, execution layer, and settlement layer. But what I want to discuss is the money associated with the OP token, and specifically its valuation. I did some research, and I saw that uh, per DeFi Llama, the OP token is optimism, is ranked number nine in protocol total value locks, right? It has something like a fully diluted market cap of $4.6, and it, it was trading at $1.8. And let's coin market cap um, OP. It might be trading higher now. It's probably trading at $1.26. Yeah, this is it's insane. So it's a $4.6, nearly $5 billion market cap of the OP token. But here's where like, I, give, I give it so much grief. The OP token is 100% pre-sold. I mean, it, if you look at like how they sliced up the um, token allocation, it, it looks like it's appropriately distributed, but it, it's really not. And... When, when I did some research, you can see the ecosystem fund gets 25%. The retroactive public goods fund gets 20%. Airdrops 
get 19%, core contributors get 19%, investors get 17%. This all adds up to 100 these are all a lot of slices of the category, but and, and it acts like an illusionary hand wave of equal distribution. But really, when you read between the lines, it's another centralized, pre-sold wealth creation event for the few at the expense of the many. And what I mean is that 81% of the aggregate token is under control of optimism and or uh, its investors. That's 100 total minus user airdrops 19 equals 81 percent so there isn't actually a lot of opportunity for the general public to participate in the op token but let's put that aside because um it i want to highlight some of the good about op before before we harp on the tokenomics and its value so you can see from the uh, distribution schedule, there's 20% that's allocated to like retroactive public goods funding. This is called retro, retro PGF for short. And retro PGF sounds normal. And I think it might be the best aspect of, OP, of OP's tokenomics. And the gist of it is that eight, 860 million tokens have been allocated to retroactive public goods. And this is a mechanism to reliably reward the public for the impact they provide on the optimism uh, layer two. Essentially, a governing committee consisting of the Optimism Collective, Citizens House, and Token House will be responsible for doling out OP tokens as grants to projects, right? So if you're building a D app or, or if you're building a, any DeFi app on optimism, the Optimism Collective might grant you some OP tokens uh, as an incentive um, as an incentive for building on the Optimism platform via the retroactive public goods allocation. The catch is that uh, the the allocation, the grant, has to be deemed to provide substantial public goods alongside certain criteria, so it's not going to anyone. Like, the committee has to choose who gets the OP allocation, and it can also be used to compensate project builders for their positive contributions without generating revenue. I've included in the link... Um, where people can learn more about retroactive, retroactive public goods, uh, you should for sure read it. And I think it's noble. But but with that said, uh, the OP token is still 100% pre-sold, 100% pre-mined, and 81% of the aggregate token distribution is insider-controlled. Right? So what does that mean for the value of the OP token? Is it worth the 108 that it is right now? Is it worth $2? Is it worth $100? Is it worth a million dollars? No, 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 no. There's actually a very um, quantifiable way through which we can quanti- we can like uh, define what the value of the Optimism token is. It's a way we can express the value of the Optimism token. And I, I try to articulate this by answering the following question. What is the net profit of an Optimism transaction after paying for base layer security? So the Optimism protocol has to pay uh, has to pay layer 1 Ethereum for providing security to L2. After that security has been paid, how much how much is left for Optimism? This is called sequencer margin. Okay, and sequencer margin is calculated as the layer two transaction fees minus the layer one batch submission fees, right? And if we just uh, go down a level, the layer one batch submission fees are the fees that Optimism Protocol pays to submit L2 transactions to L1. And as noted earlier, this is also called the security fees or security costs, right? So when you perform a transaction on Optimism, uh, you have to pay something for that transaction. It's very, very small. It's usually like one, two, three, four, five, six cents. But those transactions get bundled up with thousands of other transactions. And then the transaction gets submitted to the base layer one um, for uh, for security, right? And base layer one will charge a fee for that, right? And that comes out of the transaction fees, so what's left is called sequencer fee margin, and that's transaction fees minus layer one batch submission fees. So how much how much sequencer fee margin is optimism generating for the protocol every day, every week, every year? In TradFi land, this is like 
this is like net earnings, right? So if gross earnings are pre-tax earnings uh, or revenue, then you back out operating costs, raw materials. You might be left with earnings before interest tax depreciation, depreciation. That's EBITDA. And then once you back out interest tax depreciation, depreciation, then you might get like net operating profit or net earnings. This is a very simplified way to think about that in DeFi land, and that's called sequencer fee margin. So the average sequencer fee margin, the average daily sequencer fee margin per Dune Analytics is about $14,000 per day. Did some backdating, and I saw that it's as high as 45000 So I'm happy that the protocol is at least profitable. It's not a complete dog like LDO, but a protocol that generates $14,000 a day to its to its that generates $14,000 a day after paying trend after paying security fees. How much is that worth? Is it worth $4 billion? And again, like this sound, this might sound abstract, but think about it in like a traditional finance capacity. What is the value of a company that generates $14,000 a day? All right. Is it 4 billion, 10 billion, a hundred million? Um, and, and I, I, we can back into this very, very easily, uh, by like, playing with the um, earnings per token and approximating around a what we think the fair price should be. So if we think that the $14,000 to $45,000 uh, is the range of the sequencer fee profit, remember $14,000 is the 30-day daily average and 45000 is the prior period peak, this means that we have a range of 14,000 to 45,000 that could serve as like the annualized profit of the sequencer fees. So, when we take the 14,000 as the min, 45,000 as the max, annualize it across a 12-month drilling window, and I keep this super simple by assuming there's going to be no token inflation, which we know is not true. Optimism already said that they're going to be inflate, inflating at a at an annualized rate of 2%. But that just makes it worse. Put that to the side. Put that to the side. No more token dilution. No more inflation. And what are we left with? If we look at the 14,000 min, 45,000 max as the daily sequencer fee margin range, and we assume a token supply of 4.2 billion, an annualized sequencer fee margin min and max is 5 million or 16 million. So... What is the value of a company that generates $5 million a year in profit? What is the value of a company that generates $16 million a year in profit? Right? We can like begin to uh, back into this by calculating what is the earnings per token. In TradFi world, this is earnings per share. And when we see this min-max range, we're actually, we can like triangulate around a min of 0.001 cent and a max of 0.003 cent. Oh, it's 0.001 cent or 0.003 cents. Yeah. So if we take the fully diluted market cap of uh, of uh, 4.2 billion tokens between that our earnings per token range of 0.001 to 0.003. At the current spot price of a dollar and eight cents, OP is trading somewhere between two hundred seventy and two and two and eight hundred sixty-five, uh, trailing twelve months PE ratio. So two seventy to three sixty-five PE. That this is saying that an investor is willing to pay two hundred sixty-nine dollars and eight hundred sixty-five dollars for every dollar of earnings. Would you pay $865 for $1 of earnings? Would you pay $269 for $1 of earnings? The answer is no. Private investors are not buying at this range. They're selling at a 270 to 860 uh at the 860 range. This is for sure going to be a dump onto retail sellers. Private investors, seed round investors were buying OP token at like uh 0.001, 0.002, like three, four, five, ten, twenty cents. At a four billion dollar market cap with an eight hundred sixty-five x P ratio, they're selling. Right, a four billion market cap is too high, and I am betting the farm that investors are going to dump OP as soon as their vesting schedule allows them to do so. It's not worth fourteen billion. It's not the 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 protocol is not worth four billion dollars uh, when it at best earns. 
16 to 51 million dollars a year in pro in in protocol profit it doesn't make sense right you'd have to 10x the uh current 14,000 dollars per day in sequencer fees to justify the 4 billion dollar market cap 10x that means demand on optimism would also have to 10x it hasn't even happened even during the bull run where optimism was uh providing and uh, liquidity mining incentives, it, it couldn't reach the same value. So, for example, Optimism has a token incentive program with Ave. They had one, remember? Uh, and it was it was a liquidity mining initiative to drum up demand on Optimism. You provide collateral on on Optimism's Ave. This means you go to Ave.com, you click uh, Optimism and not Arbitrum. You provide collateral, right? The OP will reward you with it a two percent yield, in addition to whatever the platform yield Ave was providing. So, if Ave was providing like a three percent annualized yield on ETH, OP would provide you with an additional two percent yield uh, in the form of OP tokens for lending your ETH on the optimism implementation of Ave. Same with borrowers. If you borrowed funds on Optimism's Ave, OP would reward you with a 1% yield rebate. So this is another example is if you were borrowing ETH uh, at 5%, OP would reward you with a 1% rebate in the form of uh, OP tokens to make the, the net like yield 4%. This is not in US dollar denominated turns. So what do you think happens? Uh, you You already know like, what you think happens is exactly what happens. When there was a liquidity mining initiative with OP on Ave as well as any of the apps on OP, you saw a pump. And then once the liquidity mining initiative dropped, there was a dump, right? And Token Terminal has a really interesting note that says, a case of unsustainable liquidity mining Aave's borrowing volume on optimism dissipates after OP token incentive ran out. And what you can see is within seven days of launch on optimism, Aave's borrowing volume increased from 5 million to 1.5 billion. This is with the token incentive program, right? The total, the borrowing volume decreased from 900 million to 5 million when the token incentive program ended. And as of the end of December 2022, the total borrowing volume on Optimism is just $4 million. And I pull up the chart. You can for sure see what happens. Ave launches on Optimism with the uh, token incentive. There's an increase to $1 billion. Slowly over the life of the uh, token incentive program, this is a liquidity mining initiative, uh, the total volume on Aave decreases. And then when the token incentive program ends, it drops from $900 million to $5 million in daily volume. That is a 99% drawdown, right? And then when you overlay the uh, OP token price, you can see it's the same story. It, it follows like this, these liquidity mining incentives, like spot on. The OP token incentive starts. You can see the OP token pumps to two. Because everybody's liquidity mining, it's fake synthetic demand. Then over time, as the liquidity uh, mining program continues, demand dissipates. There's macroeconomic headwinds. The OP token incentive ends. And then uh, the OP token value drops um, 100% from $2 to $1. Where's that today? Right? Or, yeah. Yeah, so... Why am I sharing this? Like, why does any of this stuff even matter? Like, I, I'm sharing this to the front run team because Optimism's first investor unlock is 142 days away. Keep in mind, when the investor unlocks are enabled, there's going to be $160 million of new OP liquidity that's going to enter the retail market on May 2023. I have a link posted to, un to uh, token unlocks where you can see it. Uh, right now, right now, uh, what will be unlocked is the core contributors and the investors on 
May 2023. Right now, from year one, a percentage of the ecosystem fund, retroactive public goods funding, user airdrops are enabled, but uh, that's only a percentage. And what happens is we have to overlay the $160 million of new OP liquidity against the existing distribution schedule that uh, that is also in flight. So 64%, that's the ecosystem plus retroactive public goods plus um, airdrops are being unlocked over a four-year window. 30%, 15%, 10%, 4 each year, plus an inflationary schedule. So that the way the math works out is in year one, 30% of the 64%, that's the ecosystem, retroactive public goods, airdrops are going to be available. That's $824 million. In year two, there's going to be another 15% of the 64%. That's the ecosystem, retropublic goods, airdrops is going to be available. It's $412 million. The $412 million plus the $160 million plus the $824 million is going to adds up to $1.35 billion new OP tokens that are going to be available by the end of year two. By the end of year two. And think about this. Optimism has a $4 billion market cap right now. Uh, right now, without the 120 million plus 412 do you really think that the op market cap is going to go higher given the macroeconomic headwinds layer 2 competition with the zk evm and arbitrum as well as the upcoming token unlocks like i i don't think so at all i don't think so at all i'm super short op and i'd be careful with anybody who's buying op at this point given the token unlocks uh Proceed with caution. I, I think I think there are going to be bad days ahead for the OP token holders. Last, we're going to cover uh, the GMI token. Uh, I chose a pretty snarky title called GMI Ain't Gonna Nake It. Then we remember GMI. It was originally a meme uh, from the last crypto bull cycle. Uh, you probably heard it with memes like when Lambo, when Moon, Magic Internet Money. We're going to make it, et cetera, right? GMI eventually became the GMI uh, token under under set protocol. And the gist of it is that GMI became an on-chain fund that was managed by set protocol. So on-chain funds are like ETFs. And like in the crypto world, it allows a basket... It allows users to invest in a basket of crypto assets and employ a variety of strategies without having to handle the tokens individually. So if you want to buy like 10 or 15 crypto crypto assets, you could go to Uniswap and do it, but you could also buy a uh, you could also buy an asset created by a platform like set protocol that represents a composition of crypto assets that you're interested in similar to an etf right the crypto assets are like in the smart contract the user can never lose control of their funds and they can withdraw or liquidate their position at any times and they can observe the smart contracts token balances set protocol was the was the mechanism to create and manage uh these assets such as gmi so, got it. GMI, ETF, managed by set protocol. The investment thesis behind GMI was it was created by Bankless Dow, who wanted to create something called a DeFi growth index, um, which was crystallized with the GMI token, right? And the thesis is that this index, DeFi growth index GMI, captures the performance of, quote, emergent DeFi application themes right so what is the actual what was the actual underlying assets that encompass the gmi uh the gmi token it was the worst performing uh DeFi apps like <laughs> of 2022 right uh rbn mpl uh, i know mpl is like down like 95 percent uh ohm it goes on and on and what's disappointing is that this GMI token, via the composition of assets selected by the Bankless DAO, which was managed by Index Co-op and deployed on set protocol, has since lost 95 to 99% of its aggregate market value, right? But it's kind of, it gets a little bit worse because even to participate in this investment, right, to buy 
the GMI token, which represents a, a basket of assets that align to the Bankless DAO uh, emergent DeFi application theme. You have to buy GMI token on the market and pay uh, pay the set creator, in this case, Bankless DAO, 1.95% management fee called the streaming fee. Okay, this is a management fee in the TradFi world, but now it's called a streaming fee in DeFi land. What's crazy is that unlike TradFi world, the capital buying requirements for set creators on set protocol, it's zero. This isn't just for Bankless DAO. It's for every set creator on token set. And I'm going to deviate a bit, and I want to go to token set, which is the tool that's managed by set protocol, so you can actually see what I'm talking about. So set protocol... Explore sets and new products created on set protocol. And we can see, like, I think DeFi Pulse Index. DeFi Pulse Index is created is an asset management. is a composition of assets that align to the DeFi Pulse Index investment thesis, which is primarily Uniswap, Aave, Maker Synthetics, and, oh, there's some loopering too. And then you can see it has, like, the inclusion criteria, selection criteria, the methodology for actually why, why Uniswap is in this DeFi Index, so on and so forth. But if you scroll all the way to the bottom, you can see the market cap's 19 million, but it charges a 0.95% streaming fee. But like the creator's balance in the set is zero, is zero. The creator's balance in the set is the amount of money the set creators put into the set. So you have 16,000 people for this DeFi pulse index who own who own DFI tokens paying the set creator 0.95% annually, which is, uh, that's round up to 1%, 19 million, 19 million, 1.9 million, $195,000. They're paying, uh, who is this, Index Co-op? Who has created this? DeFi, oh, DeFi Pulse. The set holders, which are the token holders of this DeFi index, are paying DeFi Pulse 1% of $19 million per year to manage this set and they don't and DeFi Pulse has zero skin in the game. It's crazy. It's like you could go in to set to set protocol. I encourage you to do this. Create your own set, go market it, and then collect the 1% uh royalty fee. You get paid no matter how good or how bad the token, no matter how good or how bad the asset performs, right? This means individuals creating the set, index co-op, bank licks, galleon, whoever, they have no skin in the game. They collect a management fee of 1%, 2%, regardless of the fund's performance. And when we look at the GMI, what's the result? It's a disaster. Disaster. Down 88% over the past 12 months. Bankless DeFi Innovation Index currently trading at $12.26. And what's crazy is that... um, uh, there's not there. The underlying tokens are now non-existent. There's like 12 USDC, right? What happened? So what happened is that uh, the underlying assets of the GMI index were reallocated to USDC, and then there was a pro- proposal to deprecate the basket of assets on Index Co-op, which uh, which helps, which is one of the fund managers with Bankless DAO for the GMI token on uh, Set Protocol. Uh, they created a proposal to deprecate GMI and why. Uh, I, I have this loaded up on the screen. Uh, low TVL, high maintenance and limited participation. We can see the current TVL on GMI is 480,000 and the peak TVL was 4 million, right? And to quote uh, Index Co-op, over the last several months, Index Co-op has been scaling back in size and expenditure and is refocusing the product mo- roadmap to meet our core objective. As part of these efforts, the Index Co-op protocol, product pod has identified several products that have not shown strong demand or demonstrated product market fit. These products have lagged in metrics and KPIs. Lagged in metrics? That's so crazy. That means return. Lagged in metrics and KPIs that, in, that the Index Co-op monitors, such as TVL, net dollar flows, unique holders with greater than $100 exposures. So what they're saying is GMI, data, IBTC, IETH, BTC, 2X, ETH, 3X, uh, 2X, which is like double exposure, double exposure to BTC. Uh, They're going to deprecate it and retire it. So like my conclusion is that um, be extremely cautious of investing in automated crypto asset funds based on unproven investment thesis. This whole, this whole, 
emergent DeFi application investment thesis. It was a complete shot in the dark. I mean, kudos to the Bankless DAO people for trying, but like, they had no history on this, right? I mean, they didn't know if it was going to work or not. They were collecting a 2% management fee on $4 million, irregardless of the performance of the token, right? I would avoid unproven investment thesis, especially with junior fund operators, which is like the majority of the DeFi community especially those who have only experienced the bull cycle. I mean, smart contract or not, you're setting yourself up for failure. I would avoid all automated asset management solutions like set protocol, where the creator has zero of their net worth invested in the success or failure of the fund, right? What, what incentive does the fund creator have to do a good job if their personal net worth isn't tied into the success of the fund? There, it's zero. Without buy-in from the fund, manager via their personal capital you are playing a crooked coin flip heads they win tails you lose don't do it buy eth buy bitcoin just slow walk it do your research don't rush it so with that said uh we've covered the top three topics of the week uh if you're jonesing for more information at the bottom of the uh at the bottom of this post I have a section called Other Content to Increase Your Knowledge and Wisdom. It's some other trending articles that we've written on Front Run. Uh, check it out. Uh, there's also some really great analysis research from Frogs and On, LPL Research, and Decentralized Finance from the St. Louis Fed. Check it all out. Check it all out. Do your research. And we're going to crush 2023 together, guys. So with that said, thank you for thank you for joining us today. I'm your host, John Cook. Remember, we are on a journey to front run the next generation of wealth creation that is decentralized finance and crypto. Hit the subscribe button, share with your friends, and also check out our newsletter at frontruncrypto.com. Remember, crypto is risky and you should not invest more than you are willing to lose. Until next time, guys. Peace.